This audio program is a ministry of Clear Note Fellowship. For more information, go to clearnotefellowship.org. As we begin, I want to start by saying that I actually sat down with my wife uh, and had some interviews with some of our abused uh, church members in anticipation of this, and I want to thank them publicly. Some of them are here, and it's difficult for them to talk about the things they went through, and it was very helpful to me. So I want you to know that sometimes as I'm talking, I'll be uh, referencing a woman that said something to me, and it may well have been one of those. Let's begin this morning with prayer. Uh, hear and join, we, join me in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. For you are with me, Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Uh, This morning... The little uh, reference in the uh, brochure to um, what I am saying says that victims of sexual abuse, this will be a lot better if I, it's not fuzzy, being so old as Alex says I am. What what does that make you, Alex, 11? (laughs) He looks 11, doesn't he? Victims of sexual abuse carry their scars with them their whole lives, affecting every relationship they have. This makes, them, this makes caring for victims of sexual abuse a delicate and lifelong work. How do we go about it with wisdom, compassion, and courage? And in trying to answer that last, that last question, I'm going to be building and, and continuing what has been said, and that is... Uh, encouraging you to go about it. And um, I'm not going to go much into the dynamics of or damage done by sexual abuse. Some of that's been uh, covered already. If you want to refer to a useful book on this, it's been referenced. Uh, Dan Allender's The Wounded Heart is very useful for this. You can find out more about the dynamics and about the particular damages done. So I'm not going to spend most of my time talking about that. This morning I'm wanting to establish in you some confidence to be helpful to those who have been victims of sexual predation. The necessity of taking responsibility for the care, the pastoral care of the sexually molested. Pastors, elders, deacons, Titus to women are generally familiar with the inconvenience and difficulty of dealing with sin in the lives of those we are responsible for. But there is difficulty, and then there is difficulty. Okay? So I want to talk to you about uh, farming for a minute. On large farms, chicken, pig, dairy farms, beef farms, some of you work on farms or have, they have something, uh, a, uh, a structure sometimes on these farms called manure pits. Manure pits uh, can be large open like a pond with a, with a dam all around it that they pump all of the liquid manure produced on the farm into or they pile it all into. Or they can actually be large caverns under the living area of the animals. The floor being... Uh, permeated, is that the right word, with, uh, with little slits, and the manure perforated, yeah, that works, thank you, and the manure falls down through these 
uh, holes into, in the floor, and it, it accumulates in this underground subterranean cavern, and it just fills up over time with liquid manure. And I had uh, the privilege. I was uh, visiting a relative one time, and he worked on one of these farms. I grew up on a small farm. We didn't have anything that elaborate. Uh, and he worked on one of these farms, and he was showing me the, uh, the way this thing worked. And he took me to one of the uh, uh, access holes in the, in the floor. And they have to have access holes because they occasionally have to pump this out. They also have to be careful to have ventilation because poisonous gases and heavier-than-oxygen gases build up in there, uh, and it can be very dangerous. Uh, and these access holes can be... Uh, maybe as large as half of this gray uh, rectangle that I'm standing on. I don't know if you can see it. This is, so they'd be about four by four feet. And as we're looking at this access hole into the subterranean manure pit, I was told the story about the recent uh, dairy cow that fell into the pit. Now imagine that you're there uh, and you watch this dairy cow do a you know, two and a half turn gainer down into this four by four hole. And they're in maybe up to eight feet of liquid manure. And you're standing on the floor above that, maybe three feet above the surface on a nice solid floor, and you're looking at the animal struggling down there. Now I know what you're all going to do. You're all going to run to the barn and grab a rope tie it around yourself and have somebody else hold the other end and you're going to dive in and wrap it around the cow, right? I want you to know that uh, that's not what you're going to do. In fact, there's not much you can do. There may be some kind of emergency apparatus, but that cow doesn't have very much time. And if you could get a rope around it, it wouldn't come up through the hole without damaging the cow significantly. So what's the best thing you can do? What would be the humane thing to do? Get a gun and shoot the cow, right? That would be the humane thing. It's unfortunate, but this is one of the best images I can use to explain the, the morass that surrounds sexual predatory sin. It is like being in that environment. We're suddenly aware that someone has been buried in filth and needs rescuing. And of course, a man or woman made in the image of God is not a cow. Okay? And so there aren't any allowances for simply cutting our losses. We must do something. This time... We grab the rope and dive in. This is somewhat like the reality we suddenly face when we are presented with the horror of a case of sexual molestation in our churches. We're going along week to week in our perfunctory ways, and suddenly we're presented with something. Boom, there it is. I wasn't expecting to hear about molestation today. That wasn't in my book. We're not prepared. We're not vigilant. And one indication of how surprised we are is one indication of us not being prepared is how surprised we often are by the surfacing of sin and particularly gross, raw, ugly forms of sin. But 1 Peter 5 says, Be sober of spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Now, we usually think of these verses only with reference to ourselves. Now, be careful. Don't let yourself get devoured. 
This is a proper interpretation. This is proper. But what if the devil is devouring someone else? What does it look like when he's devouring someone else? What is needed? What is lacking? And so the question we have heard the answer to already in this conference is, are we short on victims who are being devoured by the devil? Well, the answer obviously is no. What is needed? What is needed is shepherds, shepherds to care for the sheep. We're not short on shepherds, are we? At the time of Micaiah, was, was the kingdom short on prophets? <laughs> you say yes. <laughs> prophets of the Lord, okay. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But there were lots of prophets. We have lots of shepherds, but we have very few shepherds. Why aren't there 500 people here? Did we have 500 uh, brochures go out in the mail? Did we have uh, a Facebook that page that 500 people saw? Why don't we have 500 people here? Oh, I know. It's because they see the brochure and they say, oh, uh, no, thank you. I, I just attended the conference on sexual molestation in the church over there in that city. We all know what we should stay away from, don't we? Without ever having tried to care for someone who's been molested, we all intuitively know that if we go there, the danger is great and the surroundings are absolutely hostile, like that manure pit. We don't want to interrupt the lion in his dinner, do we? Paul writes to the In the book of Thessalonians, he says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren of God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power In the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know, what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And so he says, I haven't forgotten your work of faith, your labor of love, your steadfastness of hope. But do you think that those three things have nothing to do with the fact that he had proved himself to be a certain kind of man among them when he was with them? He had certainly done so. Paul had proven to the Thessalonians through his work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope that he could be depended upon and that he was a true shepherd. And it's time for men to prove themselves for the sake of their charges. It's time for you and I to prove ourselves for the sake of our charges. Hebrews chapter 11 is supposed to be continued in our lives. You know, we're all familiar with the faith chapter. By faith, by faith, by faith. They did this, they did this, they did this. And it should be, you should be able to know and say of one another that by faith, Pastor Smith walked into the darkness, waded into the quagmire, grabbed Susie by the hand, and led and pulled her free to safety. And by faith, Sister Jones washed off Susie's filth and clothed her with beautiful garments. But we don't say that because we can't. We can't say it. We leave Susie to rot in the pit and we would have done better for the cow. As Harry said yesterday, as he was talking about the fact that The Humane Society for Animals existed first, right?
We have not been prepared to wade into the muck and to look to a benevolent heavenly father to provide wisdom to us and deliverance through us. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. It is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be careful how you walk, because be careful, therefore, how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. What are we dealing with when we find ourselves working with the molested? What are we dealing with? Well, we're all born of sin. And we all know that in Adam's fall, we sinned all. That we have his sin in our hearts bringing death to us. And that while we were made in the image of God, made in God's image, we are corrupted by sin. And as we live, this this corruption is expanded through sins committed by and against us. We become more distorted and progress further into the idolatry. If you read Romans 1, and I know you have, you see that progression further into idolatry, further into sin, further into distortions and corruptions. The corruptions and distortions influenced by molestation, however, are particularly intense as they wreak havoc on the soul at the formative time when proper nurture, love, and instruction are key. The resulting disfigurement of the soul is devastating. If original sin could be said to blur the image of God in man, and compounded by our personal sins, his image was then distorted further, molestation, when joined with our sin nature, paints a Picasso. Their souls are greatly corrupted, distorted. How much distortion is likely connected to the timing, the nature, the intensity, and longevity of the molestation, coupled with how close the molester was to the victim, how devastating the betrayal was. The result is an understanding of themselves that is incomprehensible to someone not sharing their history. Sharing the same sinful heart, yes. But we can't understand the distortions. One dear friend who had been horribly molested by her father and others shared an account of spending the night at her little friend's house at age eight or nine. Lying in the room with her young host, she was asked, why aren't you sleeping? Her response Won't your dad come in tonight? Why would my dad come in? Is there a more poignant illustration of the contrast between what should have been and what was? The girl might as well have been saying, aren't everyone's ears on the same side of their head? I thought everyone's ears were all on the same side of their head. This was one of the starting points of her realization that there was something horribly different and wrong in her life. As I said at the beginning, my goal is to provoke you to action. And I know you have many fears. You don't have a degree like Dan Allender, the author of the book I was talking about. I want you to understand that many victims of molestation have gone to many people with degrees and have received no help.
like the woman who reached out and touched the hem of Jesus' garment. She had been to many, many physicians, and they were not able to help her. That same friend told me that she would prefer the loving care of someone who had no terminal degree but believed in sin over a fleet of credentialed professionals who did not. That's my paraphrase, but that's essentially what she said. Tim referenced Gregory the Great as he was speaking. He referenced John Calvin and Baxter and others who had lived and ministered prior to the time when, according to Harry, there was no official child protective entity except the church of God. Those poor men, what did they do prior to the writing of the wounded heart? Lucas, are you here? How do you say the incompetence in French? Is that what they were? The incompetence? Tim's still waiting, Lucas, for you to say it. Oh, man. (laughs) How did they help? How could they be useful? It's a good thing that child molestation didn't exist before the definition was brought for us by the Nixon administration. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must, not, but he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. How about, uh, how about uh, 2 Timothy 3.16? Right? Most of you have probably memorized it. What's it profitable for? Does it equip him? It equip him, equips the man of God for everything except. I'm not downplaying books we can read. We should read them. But I'm saying that you have God's word and that you have his spirit. And those equip you. For every good work. Well, you might say, I haven't been molested, so I really can't be helpful. Tim has a saying he likes to say, I don't know where he got it. In the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. A person who has been healed of childhood molestation may be great at helping and counseling others, but only if they themselves have been washed and recreated, all things having been made new. And I don't mean that they're perfectly healed in all ways. But you want them to know that there is supposed to be a symmetry to the face, an ear on each side, right? And as I say this, I want to say a word to those who have been molested from 1 Peter Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of, our, and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. So absolutely, you can be delivered from this awful distortion. But if you already knew something about symmetry, mightn't you be helpful? Do we ignore the Apostle Paul's directive on marriage, directives on marriage, just because he had no wife? (laughs) 
I should say something else. Be aware how difficult it is for someone who has been a former victim and who is being healed to re-enter the pit for the sake of someone else. Be very aware of that. It's difficult for them. All right, how about this? We, 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 we excuse ourselves. We'll say, well, I'll make a mistake. I'll, I'll mess someone up. I'll make a mistake. I'll, I'll blow it. Well, let me let you in on a little secret, okay? You will only be blamed in your work for the things you do correctly in these situations. And never for your true failures. Okay? Now, a young married in a young married woman in my church in Toledo 25 years ago came to me and she, she said, I, I have to tell you something, I'm disturbed. She said, my brother-in-law, she was, she was now married, but it had been affecting her marriage. My brother-in-law, who was older, um, he used to say things to me, and I don't remember if he touched her, but he used to say things to me, and he used to come on to me all the time. And I have another friend, a girlfriend who was my friend at the time, a teenager, and he used to do that to her too and and come on to her right in front of me and me in front of her. And I thought, okay, what do I do? I got his phone number. He's now living in Georgia, and what's he doing? He's the children's pastor of a church in Georgia. Of course. So I called him up and I said, now I've been talking to your, your sister-in-law and she confided this and this and this to me. I said, what, what response do you have to that? And he said, uh, well, it was quiet. And he said, well, I might have said some things I shouldn't have said. Was he guilty? Oh, uh, he gave me that much. I knew he was dead guilty. And so I started talking to him further, and he got really uncomfortable, and he said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go. I, I can't talk to you anymore. So he hung up the phone. Well, how long was it later? I don't remember. I don't know if you do. I got a call from his senior pastor. You know, it was a, I think it was kind of a, a charismatic church and appeared to be a large church with a staff. You couldn't look on the internet then because that kind of thing wasn't going on then so much. Um, I, didn't, I don't know if there was an internet then. Uh, Alex? Uh, so I got a call from his boss, the, pa- the senior pastor. And I say senior pastor because I want you to understand this was the top dog I was talking to now there at the church. So what did he say? What did he say? He said, thank you for caring for my sheep and being proactive in their protection. Is that what he said? Not quite. You didn't follow Matthew 18. I'm disgusted and offended with you. Now look at the mess you've left me with. If the Clarenote Bloomington pastors had a church bus for every time we got accused of not following Matthew 18, we would be the envy of the Southern Baptist Convention. (laughs) And I want you to understand, I want you to understand that you're going to hear this accusation constantly. And when you're faithful in your work as you preach and as you teach and as you counsel, this will always be the accusation. I work with Tim and I love him. Do you think I know what Tim's sins are? He knows what my sins are. But Tim's more public than I am. Right? So he gets more heat. It's always been an interesting thing to me that nobody ever attacks him for his real sins. They're always attacking him for the place where he's faithful. They could call me. I could tell them what the real sins are, but no. You understand? Listen, this is how it is with our work. I have sins. You have sins. And if you think, well, I, 
I can't do this. I might mess something up. Let me tell you, if you're faithful to God's word and to your work of love and care for the people in your, in your charge, you won't be accused of messing things up because of something you did wrong. You'll be accused of messing things up because of something you did right. Stand before Almighty God and say, I will lay down my life for the sheep. Now, I have six things that are just boundaries to help keep you on the playing field. Because if you've, if you've established that you will stand before God and lay down your life for the sheep, I'll, I'll give you six uh, posts, pails, markers to keep inside of. And they're going to be obvious to you, but maybe not. Okay? One, you may not say be filled and warmed. You may not say be filled and warmed. As Harry said yesterday, you cannot bury your head in the sand. A couple of us took a young man hours away to his hometown to confess his, to his parents and their pastors that he had molested his sister, his parents' daughter. Two pastors from that satellite congregation did meet with us. The young man, his parents, the two, two or three of us, and those two pastors And we did it during the morning worship because they had multiple services there and everybody else was in the the sanctuary watching the pre-recorded message. Okay? And so here we were telling these parents that their son had molested their daughter, his sister, in front of these pastors. And this family was disintegrating. The marriage was disintegrating. The children were disintegrated. The girl wasn't there. She wasn't anywhere around. She was in the town. She was underage. She lived with her parents. And as, as we were talking about the disintegration and the difficulty, one of the pastors, and this guy was an engineer, one of the pastors said, well, you know, those are difficulties in your life. Um, and, uh, you know, you guys are in this spe- special class. You know, you're taking the leaping on forward to the other side class. And so in lesson six, you're going to hit that. That's what he said, isn't it, Jake? Might not have been lesson six. Might have been seven. Okay? In lesson six, you're going to hit that. And, of course, you know, we're sitting there thinking, you've got to be kidding me. You've got to be kidding me. And so, no doubt seeing our disapproval, the other pastor eventually offered to meet with the family at 6.30 p.m. that evening. And I'm thinking, oh, good. 6.30 p.m., that'll give them time to get their daughter. They can bring her. He says, bring your daughter over. We'll meet with you. 6.30 p.m. And I'm, I'm just feeling better. And then he said, uh, uh, I, I can give you until almost 8. Oh. That'll be wonderful. What about leaving the 99? I mean, that was like the nail that closed everything up. We took the young man to the police station to make his confession because he had to make it in the town where he'd committed the crime. And he went back and and, uh, talked with an officer and made his confession. I'll tell you more about that in a minute. But the pastors didn't come with us. They didn't even come with us. One of them called, didn't he, later? That's all I want to say happened. And on this idea of taking the perpetrator to confess, I want to say, uh, with the encouragement of one of the the women I talked to, do it quickly and don't think about it. Don't talk to somebody about it and say, what are your thoughts about this? You've got a caught dead-to-rights perpetrator. And there may be some kind of preparatory things you do as a pastor to prepare him for what he's going to do. And that's good. You may want to tell him he's going to go to the police. He's going to walk in and he's going to say, I want to confess to you. And then you understand what he's going to confess. 
because you know what he's going to confess. You make sure he's confessed it to you already, that you've probed him about the details of what he has done. And then you take him to the police station and you introduce him to the desk clerk that's there because it might not be during business hours, but there's always somebody there. And the desk clerk will, will handle it from there. And then you see to it that he actually made the confession that he made to you. And don't lawyer him up. You understand? That will do nothing for his soul. Won't do anything for the victim's peace of mind either. Yeah. A lawyer will immediately uh, want to say, don't make any confession. He'll immediately want to make sure, da 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 And I don't remember who it was that said it, but this man, he doesn't have a right to not account for his deeds. I don't care what the lawyers say. He needs to confess his deeds. And they'll lawyer him up, and let me tell you, the lawyers will make it so that nothing ever happens to him. And they'll do it in a second. They've got it all down pat. Work, struggle, inconvenience, discomfort, fatigue, filth, pain, sorrow. Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? Second, you may not say to the victim, heal yourself. Heal yourself. Job says, I delivered the poor and the orphan who had no helper. The blessing of the one ready to perish came upon me. The widow's heart sang for joy. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind. I was feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I investigated the case which I did not know. I broke the jaws of the wicked and snatched the prey from his teeth. I interrupted his meal. If Job had a tattoo, what would it say? It would be Amos 5.24. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And I think he'd probably have it like these guys do with their knuckles, although the letters don't match up. It would be justice and righteousness, you know. I'd like to introduce your jaw to my friend justice, is what he would say. He did. I broke his jaw. That's what he said. That's what we need tattooed on us. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream, but only if it's true. Only if it's true. Three, you may not say forgive and forget. There is no light healing acceptable. We all want things to get over quickly. We want to get out of that pit as soon as we can. We want to get under the shower and washed off as soon as we can possibly be washed off. And we don't have that privilege. It's true when we're dealing with somebody in pornography. You know, what you want to say is, have you viewed pornography? And they say, yeah, I viewed pornography. And, uh, you know, we weren't really excited about asking them that, were we? And then we say, okay, that was bad. Don't do it again. Let's pray. That's not what we do. Uh, Yeah, I viewed pornography. What kind of pornography were you viewing? Heterosexual? Homosexual? Both? 
Children, just men, just women, both. How often? On your computer, on your phone. We make an investigation. What good are we if we don't know the sins that our people are being destroyed in? Our work is not easy. But Jeremiah says that the prophets and priests of his time were greedy for gain and they dealt with the people falsely. They have healed the brokenness of my people, says the Lord. They've healed the brokenness of my people superficially, saying, peace, peace, but there is no peace. And what we do is we, we deal with somebody who's been molested and we say, peace, peace. Peace, peace. Forgive them, you know. There is no easy solution. There is no silver bullet. God is the only one who can make a new creation. He does so in his time. And we had better be available to assist him at each and every step in the process. I want to say something on the side about forgiveness. What do you want a woman who's been molested by her father for decades to say to you about forgiving her father when you yourself know that this man ought to be shot? What are you what are you going to expect of her about forgiveness? Forgiveness is an interesting thing. You know, if you read about the the slave who has forgiven much and then went and wouldn't forgive the fellow slave who is who is only to be forgiven little, you realize how important forgiveness is in our lives, and you know they can't get better without forgiveness, what are you going to do? How are you going to help them? Well, them saying the words to the perpetrator aren't going to help. The reality has to be in their hearts. And it has to be in the economy of God. You know, he, he, he has all of the forgiveness asset, God, God's bank account, The account of Jesus Christ is where all forgiveness in all of the world is kept. There isn't any more. When we forgive somebody, that's where we go to get forgiveness for them. Because, of course, we're debtors to him ourselves. What are we going to give them in forgiveness? Something of our own resource? If they could pay us back in money, we would have to in turn turn to Jesus and give the money to him. Correct? What are you going to say to them? I would say, be patient. Teach them about forgiveness. Teach them about God being the one who keeps it all. And allow them the the ability to take all that pain and difficulty and rather than holding it as bitterness and hatred, allow them to just put it up there somewhere in God's bank so that they don't have to do some kind of false step that will satisfy you. They're going to have to work through it. And it's not easy. So be careful. Number four, you may not say, I can handle this, no problem. Get appropriate outside help. The victim may, may need long-term counseling or even a new family and identity, as in the case of Annie's foster sister, as in the case of many godly friends we have. Number five, you may not say you were asking for it. Blaming the victim is a strategy for the lazy and the unloving. Why do we blame the victim? We blame the victim because we're lazy and angry that the incident has disturbed and inconvenienced us. And we don't want to do the work of figuring out what's going on. And we think about sin as something as simple as a woman's immodesty. And a woman's immodesty is sin. But she wasn't asking to be raped. The victim is an easy scapegoat. Number six, you may not say your actions are not your fault. 
The actions of your life are not your fault. One friend told me she was tired of counselors telling her that she wasn't, isn't responsible for any of her actions in life because of her past molestation. She said that she had guilt for things she shouldn't and no guilt for the things that she should have guilt for. But forget about the psychologist, and we've heard the quote about them being the sworn enemies of guilt, and, and they are, it's true. But forget about the psychologists who are the sworn enemies of guilt and realize that we, the church, have become the sworn enemies of guilt. Absolving the victim of all moral agency in life is the strategy of the lazy and the unloving. That young man that we took for his confession some hours away was taken back by a female officer He gave her his confession. He came back out into the lobby, and what did she say to us in the lobby, the female officer? He's not responsible. He'd been molested by a family friend when he was a child. The heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his deeds. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh from, will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. How holy is the God with which we have to do? All things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Unless we were sexually molested. Last night we sang Psalm 4, Tremble and do not sin. And when I said that thing about the the officer telling us that he had been molested, we already knew that. Don't worry. We already knew about his molestation. We knew about the man who did it. And you might have think, thought to yourself, well, uh, you know, what would, I th- what would I say? Is he moral, morally responsible for molesting his sister? Yes. And for many other sins that were committed before he was molested and while he was molested and after he was molested. Tremble and do not sin. Well, when do we tremble and do not sin? When we read about the expulsion from paradise, are we to tremble and not sin? When we read about Joshua and the condemning of Achan and his, and his capital punishment, are we to tremble and not sin? As Job suffers and we were there, were we to tremble and not sin? As you walk down the dusty street and you see a newly withered fig tree, are you to tremble and not sin? Are you catching what I'm saying here? We all want to sin when we see God in his holiness. The way to healing is Romans 12. Nonconformity with the world and a renewed mind. The way to healing is Jesus Christ. The way to healing is repentance and faith. We cannot deliver a victim from their fears by telling them that God is not someone to be feared. Will the children of Sodom stand before the judgment seat of Christ? What about the teenagers under the ban of the Canaanites? Will they stand before the judgment seat of Christ? What about the Sri Lankan sex slaves that Harry was telling us about? Will they stand before the judgment seat of Christ? What about the victim you will counsel tomorrow for the first time? Will he or she stand before the judgment seat of Christ? They will. Tremble and do not sin. Put these things around you and say, okay, I know I'm never going to do those things, And now I'm standing in the middle and I'm going to be a shepherd and serve the Lord.
My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Stand and say that you will be God's shepherd. Here's two closing encouragements from the Holy Spirit. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. And for whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you will help us. We ask that you will provoke us to stand as shepherds who will care for your sheep. That we will not fear. But that we will take action according to the confidence and courage that you give us by your Spirit. Teach us from your word. Cause us to love those who need our care. Cause us to be faithful. Thank you, thank you for Jesus Christ who has overcome the world. We pray in his name. Amen. This has been a production of Clear Note Press. Please feel free to share this recording with others, but do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more resources like this, go to clearnotefellowship.org.